and welcome back to the BTS podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a new listener, welcome. I'm Sierra Minova, the host, and today the topic of our conversation is transcendence and psychedelic assisted therapy. We will be diving into what it is, its therapeutic benefits with a focus on its spiritual and mystical aspect, and some of the limitations and shortcomings moving forward. I'd like to give a disclaimer that this episode is based solely on science and scientific research and its use in a clinical or research setting. Our guest speaker today, who I'm very excited to interview, is Professor David Yaden. Professor Yaden is an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. His interest lies in the mystical and transcendent aspects of the experience, one in which we'll talk about in this episode. Professor Yaden has authored over 40 scientific and scholarly publications and edited two books that provide a scientific perspective on practices and experiences traditionally associated with religion and spirituality. We will also briefly touch upon his latest book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, towards the end of this episode. Professor Yaden, a very big and warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here. So good to be here, Ciara. So I want to start off getting to know a little bit more about your work, at least for those listeners who may not be completely familiar with it. Um, so perhaps we can start with a very brief introduction to how you got into studying different states of consciousness and psychedelics, and also your interest in spirituality and transcendence. Yeah, so my interest began with my own experience, spontaneous experience, uh, intensely altered state of consciousness, we could call spiritual or mystical or peak. There's a lot of labels, as I'm sure we'll discuss, uh, that go on to these kinds of experiences. Um, But it was a a profound, positive experience to me and also uh, just fascinating. And so that led me into studying uh, comparative religion and then philosophy and then neuroscience and I did my PhD in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. I was interested in studying brief experiences that have long-lasting positive effects. And so uh, these kinds of intensely altered states of consciousness fall into that category. And so I did a lot of research, uh, like that's described in my book, uh, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience. We describe these surveys where we ask lots and lots of people about their experiences and whether uh, what it was triggered by uh, and how it impacted their life. But ultimately, I was very interested in trying to model these experiences in a controlled laboratory setting. So I tried things like virtual reality and Mm. non-invasive brain stimulation and meditation. But ultimately, it seemed to me that psychedelics were the most reliable way of inducing these kinds of intensely altered states of consciousness. Uh, these spiritual or mystical type experiences. And so I did my postdoc at Johns Hopkins uh, studying psychedelics. And uh, now I've joined the Psychedelic Center here as an assistant professor. Uh, So that's how I got from uh, being interested in these altered states in general, uh, some of my uh, path in uh, my previous work, and then how I arrived into doing psychedelic research. Yeah, amazing. You said that essentially was triggered by your own Um, personal experience. I'm just curious to know, was that experience in any shape or form triggered by any external factors or was it completely in a sober state? And then another question would be, did you ever previously have or engage in 
any form of meditative practices? Because it's very interesting that um, you said that you experienced that out of the blue in, in a way. Yeah, no substances whatsoever. Um, so no psychedelics or, or any substances. So in that sense, it came on spontaneously. Mm-hmm. In our research, we find that people who are in transitional periods of life tend to have these experiences more often. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that probably fit my situation. I just going into college, trying to figure out my future and myself. Right. And so it was a sort of transitional period, I think. And so I was thinking a lot about these questions of, of my life and my identity. And so that I think probably played some role, but I, I did feel as if the experience kind of came out of nowhere. It, it felt like it, 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 it came on entirely spontaneously. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think um, I, I heard you speak about it somewhere and it almost sounds like a Kundalini awakening. I'm not very sure if you've ever heard of Kundalini yoga, but there was a form of energy that you explained and it, it just came to my head. I was like, it sounds very similar, although people go through certain mantras and tantras to actually get to a form of Kundalini awakening. But it's very interesting how these experiences can actually happen uh, spontaneously. Yeah. Uh, right. And you, you you mentioned meditation as well. So at that point, I had maybe been briefly introduced to meditation mm. uh, years before, but I was definitely not a meditator. After my experience, though, I did start studying uh, with a Zen master um, in order to, it felt like a way to sort of understand my experience more and to even cultivate some of the positive aspects of that experience in a more controlled way. And so for a number of years, I studied uh, Zen meditation and quite a number of retreats. And even still now, I use meditation uh, more as a stress reduction type of practice. Right. Uh, But I do find meditation personally helpful. Yeah, for sure. But let's backtrack a little for now to um, introduce the topic of psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, We'll get in later on for sure into the importance of subjective experiences and transcendence experiences. But there has been a newfound interest in psychedelic research in the last two decades, what some people call the psychedelic renaissance. And of course, one of the reasons for that is due to the rise in mental health issues And another one is obviously that a lot of treatments and medications for mental health issues have a lot of severe side effects. They may even cause harm, if I may say so, and they don't work for everyone. So there's a form of this um, urgency, I would say, in the field. And I believe your current university was one of the first universities to continue this research in classic psychedelics after it was... um, classified as Schedule One drug back in the 1960s or 70s. Um, and, and it was done on psychedelic naive participants. And we can go into the study a little bit more when we discuss the mystical experience of things. But perhaps to start it off or lead with, can you introduce to us firstly what is considered a classic psychedelic and what is not? And then can we perhaps go into what psychedelic therapy actually is and what it looks like? Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot to discuss in this right. area. Absolutely. <laughs> so psychedelics is this broad umbrella term. It includes uh, a number of substances and, di- and different people use that term differently. Mm-hmm. I think increasingly a lot of people who use the term psychedelics are referring specifically to serotonergic psychedelics. 
Um, historically, some people have used the term to describe also ketamine and MDMA. Um, but let's set those aside and focus specifically on serotonergic psychedelics. So these are substances that induce a intensely altered state of consciousness, altering perception, affect, cognition, uh, generally for an, anywhere from an hour to, to several hours. And they're characterized by their agonism or activation of 5-HT2A uh, receptors, which is a form of serotonin-type uh, receptor. And these are substances like psilocybin, LSD, and DMT. Uh, those are kind of the, the best known yeah. now, I think. Here at Johns Hopkins, focuses specifically on psilocybin, uh, which is the active ingredient, so to speak, of magic mushrooms. So what would then a psychedelic-assisted therapy look like? Let's say, so in Johns Hopkins, you guys do psilocybin-assisted therapy. So how would you typically describe uh, the process? Yeah, so we have a pretty involved process here when we do uh, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy in a clinical trial-type setting. And so uh, it starts with screening. And so we are very careful about who we allow into the studies and and who we screen out. So anyone with cardiovascular issues, like heart issues, uh, people with personal or family history of uh, psychotic disorder or bipolar disorder are screened out. Um, we also screen out people who might be interested in the study for more of a drug-seeking type uh, of motivation. And so we, we go through this careful screening process. Those people who do pass uh, the screening process will then go into what we call preparation sessions. Mm -hmm. Preparation sessions involve uh, a couple of therapists or, or guides, we sometimes call them, who interact with the participant, basically just getting to know one another, building rapport and providing some psychoeducation. So what to expect, uh, what, you know, what psychedelics are, what you can expect, things to watch out for. You know, sometimes people think that they're going to be stuck in that state forever uh, or think they're dying. And so we can help to provide people with a kind of framework of, of what to expect. Then during the session days where we actually administer the psychedelic, uh, people come in. Um, and the, the participants go into a room in our lab that's made up to look like a living room, like a comfortable place with soft lighting and, uh, and couch and art on the walls. So more comfortable than a typical lab yeah. room. And these two therapists or guides will be in the room at all times with the participant. Uh, the sessions are video recorded, audio recorded. And the participant is invited to go inward. And so they'll wear eye shades, have headphones on, they'll listen to music. And, you know, they can get up to go to use the bathroom at whatever point. Uh, they can talk with the guides or therapists a little bit, but they're really invited to sort of go into the experience itself. After that day, um, there are integration sessions where right. the participant can talk with the therapist uh, 
just about their experience, help process it, integrate it. And then we do follow-up assessments to see how the participant is doing and whether there's any uh, adverse effects, uh, benefits, any issues that come up whatsoever. So that's the basic process. Yeah, I'm very glad you mentioned um, integration settings. Not a lot is mentioned about the integration, although I find that probably one of the most important aspects of it, how can you take your experience and then apply it to your actual everyday life, your reality? So is integration an essential part of the psychedelic assisted therapy generally when it is being conducted, like the study or the trials are being conducted? It's a great question. It really depends on the study. I would say right now integration is seen as largely, but not always, but largely a safety issue. And so we really want to make mm. sure that we're um, doing everything we can to enhance safety as much as we can. And so these integration sessions are more an opportunity to sort of just process and and we provide kind of a supportive environment. But there's not necessarily specific uh, psychotherapeutic modalities that are being applied, but there certainly could be. And that's Mm. definitely a direction I think the field will go in. Uh, There's so much work to be done in this field. So right now we're just looking at basic uh, drug effects and not so much interactions between certain types of psychotherapies and uh, psilocybin. And even that window of plasticity, there might be this window of plasticity post-acutely. So in the days and week following the psychedelic experience, there might be really uh, interesting and important ways that interventions can have a a bigger effect during that time. But again, these are all ideas for future studies. Uh, You know, there's, there's decades of work ahead of us, really. Yeah, that's, that's very true. There's a lot, like you said, there's still so much that we don't know and we're, we're trying to figure out, but Another thing I want to speak to you about, and you obviously mentioned it, is the set and the setting of the uh, clinical trials. Set refers to the mindset that the individual is in before facilitating the drug and the setting being their physical location, which, as you just described, um, in the clinical setting. Would you want to elaborate on the definition before I continue uh, on set and setting? Or No, I, th- I think you've You've nailed it. Yeah, the, okay. the sort of mindset that you bring, the, your, your expectations really about mm-hmm. what, what may happen and what a psychedelic is. And these come from personal expectations from reading or learning or hearing things from other people, but also culturally, uh, the kinds of ways in which society as a whole views these substances. Yeah. And then the setting is the physical setting you know, what's what's actually around you, but also your social setting. So who is mm, around you? Right. Both of these factors um, with psychedelics are, are very important, as they are with many substances, really. But there seems to be probably something uh, even more important about these factors that influence the acute subjective effects and maybe outcomes of psychedelics. Right. Right. So... Now, there's two things that I'm interested in here, one for set, one for setting. So if you talk to psychonauts, for example, they usually say that your mental state is everything. Um, if you enter a trip with negative thoughts, at least a lot of the times that that's what you're told or a negative mindset, then you're going to have what is referred to as a bad trip. 
Now, obviously, when we're dealing with um, people who have certain mental health conditions, let's say severe cases of anxiety or depression, where they're, you know, they're just, their cognitive ways of thinking are very, um, let's say, negative, and they're in a bad mental state and they're anxious, then how safe is it really to go into those altered states of consciousness? And is this where things like therapy sessions are actually important prior to the session? As you mentioned, you guys do these preparation set, uh, sessions to um, like establish some level of comfort. So is this where being in a clinical setting is useful? But then again, um, how much does it actually help if you're dealing with people who may have those certain mindsets? Yeah, so that's a complex set of issues for sure. One, So f- for sure, the clinical setting is going to reduce risks in mm-hmm. lots of ways, you know, if we're comparing it to a recreational type setting. So I'll really speak to the, the clinical setting that involves all of the safeguards that I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, although there still are risks even in, even in those settings. Um, but in terms of a bad trip, that's there's interesting issues here mm-hmm. where it's not necessarily the case that the more positive the experience, the more the better the outcome. So actually some people who have what we call challenging experiences, which could really be called a bad trip in many right. cases, actually are benefit more uh, than, than others who have like a neutral or, or even positive experience that, that can happen. And so the psychedelic experience in general is not euphoria. So the idea is not to produce the most positive experience possible. Actually, a lot of participants, especially those in clinical populations describe the experience, uh, more like climbing a mountain or mm-hmm. running a marathon. It's described as challenging and difficult and not fun, but also involving sometimes positive feelings yeah. and, and deep feelings of, of meaning. Like if you think about climbing a mountain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hiking up to the top of a mountain, there are real difficult parts uh, in addition to the, the great views. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's a more apt metaphor than the, the typical kind of drug experience where it's just this euphoria, uh, this, this up and down. I think so, that's, Oh, I was just going to say that's beautifully said. Yeah. So thanks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I'm really just trying to do justice to, to, uh, the participants of these studies, um, who have really, um, very profound insights and, and interesting, uh, descriptions of, of these experiences. Um, so, you know, you asked about risks uh, mm-hmm. having to do with people who are in clinical populations, like very depressed people, for example. Um, so there's been a number of studies, or at least a, a few now, showing that there appears to potentially be some benefit mm-hmm. uh, in reducing depression as mm-hmm. a result of, of psilocybin. But, you know, like we just talked about, that doesn't mean it's it's introducing euph- euphoric experiences. They are challenging. Um, they, they're usually beneficial. But even in this clinical setting that's tightly controlled and all the screening and prep and 
medical staff on hand. Some people uh, don't benefit uh, from from these uh, mm-hmm. from psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, and some people have adverse events that occur where uh, they have dysphoria that persists after the trial ends or anxiety and, and have difficulty integrating their experience. Uh, so that's, that's important to remember in all mm-hmm. of this, that uh, there are real risks to these treatments. Uh, yeah. It's important to listen to those uh, voices who are describing uh those those adverse or negative effects uh, because that's that's part of the whole story here you know as True. as scientists we want to try to convey the the whole story with all of its complexities very true yeah when you, i think when you think of life as well in general um people never report the positive experiences to be one that changed them or transcended them or made them into a better person it's usually the really horrible experiences that we have sometimes, well, not all the time, of course not, um, but some of the times that bring us this form of a, a change, I would say, in who we are, but to the better a lot of the time. So when you were exp- when you were describing that, it's sometimes people feel like they went through death or they, w- or they saw, you know, a suppressed memory or they went through a very scary experience, but when they come out of it, they kind of come out from the other side and it almost feels like a release or, um, as you said, it actually transforms into a positive experience. So, yeah, I think you've made that very, you made a very good, good distinction. And I think that's where, again, recreational slash um, clinical setting differs because recreational equals <laughs> euphoria. You want to have a good time, whereas clinical setting actually looks at people who are looking for it for, for a change for the better. Yeah. And, you know, I just gave sort of one, one story, but there's a lot of stories that go through in recreational and clinical settings. You can have positive experience with positive outcomes, positive experience with no positive outcomes, negative experience with positive outcomes, negative experience with negative, you know, (laughs) all of these things in, in clinical and recreational settings. So, you know, it, it gets fairly uh, complicated, and the the key is to try to provide some kind of characterization of mm-hmm. the average effects, and to try mm. to quantify that, so we can have a a sense for well, how do these treatments compare to other treatments? Because yeah. psychotherapy can very sim- can have a very similar set of stories. You know, you can have great conversations with your therapist, but actually not benefit at all, yeah. <laughs> or you can benefit a lot. Uh, you, you could have very difficult therapy and benefit from it um, or not as well. Psychedelics are the same way. And the early studies are showing, again, we, uh, well, we, we need to do bigger and better studies to, mm. to really understand this. But the, these early studies are showing that most of the samples are benefiting at least yeah. a little bit from their experience. Some are benefiting a lot, some not at all. And, and a few, a little less than 1%, are, appear to have adverse effects that require some therapeutic support afterwards. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll get more and more precise in terms of how we can characterize these average effects yeah. and what people can reasonably expect from the treatments. Um, but again, uh, all of these eventualities are, are possible outcomes. 
Yeah, for sure. I actually want to touch upon this before I go into setting, because I think you made a very interesting point, and I really want to know your thoughts on this. It's true that there, right now, you know, pilot studies or clinical trials, research trials are showing that there are more benefits, um, and there are a lot of benefits, and it's almost psychedelics have this kind of transdiagnostic applicability to them. And what I mean by that, it's this ability to cater or so-called, I wouldn't want, I don't want to use the word treat. I don't like that word, but help um, various forms of mental health conditions, whether we're looking at, and there've been trials for like uh, treatment resistant depression, smoking cessation. I think there's one for anorexia nervosa right now, addiction. I mean, it's a, it's a range of um, mental disorders. <laughs> I guess you know this way better than me, but here comes this substance or, you know, this, this drug, which eases symptoms of many different mental health conditions, which are supposed to, supposedly meant to be different conditions or different categorical underpinnings. So what do you think is happening here? Are psychedelics um, addressing a core of all mental health conditions? Or let's say if you hypothetically um, are not a fan of disorder classifications the way I am not, um, is it just acknowledging human suffering that essentially what they're doing is just basically breaking our usual fixed, rigid belief systems or core beliefs and schemas that we have about ourselves and that we have looped into ourselves based on just our upbringing and the society or the environment that we've been in? Sorry, that was a yeah. mouthful. <laughs> that was, was really interesting issues. Yeah. So why do psychedelics work across so many types of disorders, like yeah. everything from depression to addiction? Um, because most treatments in recent decades have been getting more and more specific. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a few treatments that are transdiagnostic, like you say. That one option is actually a worrying one. Uh, mm. And that is that the studies have not been good enough yet. And so mm. people are basically benefiting from a very big placebo effect. Uh, and so in that sense, the, the treatments may not be um, effective or as effective as we think that they are across these different disorders. So that, that is a worry. And that's why we need to do more research. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, it's possible that yeah, I think what you were getting at is a lot of these different uh, disorders ultimately boil down to a, a kind of a common factor of, um, yeah, it's called a P factor, like in the way that intelligence uh, boils down to the, the G factor. It's P factor for, for psychopathology or pathology. And it's unclear what that mechanism might be uh, from, from psychedelics. You know, there are certain people who are more biologically oriented who point to processes like uh, neurogenesis, right, uh, yeah. forming new new neuronal connections or neuroplasticity um, or anti-inflammatory aspects, because we do see some benefit uh, from psychedelics like psilocybin in uh, rodent models. Mm -hmm. uh, so there might be something sort of deeply biological um, yeah. in and I say everything in, in, in a sense is biological, but True. but in terms of these these processes that are are measurable and and distinct and well characterized, like neurogenesis, for example. But 
in human studies, these benefits last for much, much longer uh, than in rodent studies. And so it's possible that this, the kind of schemas that you mentioned might come into effect here. So mm. schemas, these deep beliefs or expectations. Uh, and so there's this thing called the cognitive triad, which is beliefs about oneself, yeah. one's future and the world. And it might be that psychedelics are impacting these kinds of schemas or these beliefs in a positive direction. And we would expect that when you enhance these uh, beliefs that they would affect all kinds of healthy uh, behaviors across, you know, addictions, depression, uh, etc. There are other theories <laughs> as mm, well wow. as <laughs> psychedelics might be working, but this is really the key question now. Um, yeah. You know, in addition to are psychedelics effective when paired with psychotherapy at all? Mm. You know, is there is there a real effect here? The next question is immediately, well, what's the mechanism? How is mm -hmm. it working? And I think really the field still needs to address both of these questions. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I think there's also another theory based on Carl Friston's free energy principle or the brain entropy theory, where it's about psychedelics create this form of chaos or entropy in the brain. Yeah. So it is very interesting. Um, there's, like you said, there's so much to uncap there. But going back to my question on set and setting, now I know that the clinical setting and when you described it, it actually felt very soothing for me. Um, but when I saw, when I see videos or pictures of these trials, um, you see the participants lying down with their blanket, wearing their sleep shades, and then there's like two therapists next to them. And I don't know if it's just a personality thing, but I that gives me so much anxiety. Like it does, it makes me, um, I, I just don't like that setting. And I know obviously in psychedelics, the whole point is to go inward. So you're probably not really going to care where you are. But for me, it's like if I wanted to have this form of experience, I would want it to be in nature. I don't want to be in a clinical room. You know, I don't want to wear sleep shades. Maybe I want my eyes to be open and I can close them if I need to. But as someone who's done research, you know, in the field for so long, I just want to know your thoughts on this. Is the clinical setting obviously necessary? Do you think it can ever be done in nature? Or, I mean, obviously there are limitations to that because a therapy room, you you might have some form of tests or, I don't know, some form of the bathroom, for example. But, I mean, shamanic cultures have been doing it, you know. So I'm just curious to know your thoughts on would it ever be extended to something like doing it within nature? Because that, to me, feels like a more exciting, um, if I wanted to go through a therapy session, I would prefer that than a clinical setting. Yeah, good question. You know, it's interesting, the field of of psychedelic research for so long, people have been uh, worried and, and criticizing the field there, you know, along these safety concerns, like mm. is what you're doing safe? Mm. Um, but now very more recently, there's a lot of criticism about increasing the rigor of the trials and then also increasing the variety of the trials. And so doing things like what you propose, really uh, mm. doing a study outdoors. Um, and so I think the field though, is still very concerned with safety uh, mm. first and foremost. And so having participants in 
a controlled setting where there's medical staff on yeah. hand and we can control what happens in the room, you know, like a tree's not going to fall over <laughs> or random people come into the environment. Um, that has its benefits from a safety perspective. But I think that your question is a good one. And inevitably, as we do more research, we'll look into changing all kinds of parameters. And one of them, the setting and taking things outdoors is one direction to take. Uh, Franz Vollenweider uh, and his group in Zurich in Switzerland did a study partnering with a, a Zen meditation uh, retreat center uh, called Felsentor, uh, this beautiful mm-hmm. uh, meditation hall on the mountain. Wow. And they conducted a meditation combined with psilocybin retreat in this meditation hall. And it went well. There was no uh, big adverse events. There was medical staff on hand, uh, but it was in this more outdoors type of setting. And so I think a lot of people share your interest looking at how the acute subjective effects of psychedelics are influenced by being outdoors and more natural settings. So I think we can see, we can expect to see more of, of that kind of research going forward. Of course, it's it's very personal. And at the end of the day, it is about the person. So I think it's great that it will eventually, once the, the safety protocols are, you feel more confident in those aspects of it, it will be broadened, I would say, from the clinical setting, perhaps to like a little retreat setting or or so on and so forth. Now, one of the altered states of consciousness that you are interested in is uh, self-transcendence. And I'm very excited to speak to you about this. Much like any concept or phenomenon, there's like millions, not millions, but there's so many different versions of how people would explain or understand it. Um, When I was reading about transcendence, I came across ego transcendence and self and then spiritual transcendence, like beyond space and time. So how do you define self-transcendence or transcendence? Um, And also, do you see it as something gradual, i.e. the transcendent is a process that is ongoing or one or one goes through, I would say, or is it more like abrupt? So kind of like a spiritual awakening? Yeah. So there's so many labels like we talked about. Um, Yeah. I teamed up with psychologists, uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Mm -hmm. Ralph Hood, who's a expert in psychology religion, uh, Dave Vago, who studies neuroscience of meditation, and Andy Newberg, who studies neuroscience of, of altered states and spiritual type experiences. And we tried to define a, a particular kind of mental state that we've seen traces of throughout the literature and psychology. And so what we said a self-transcendent experience was is a transient mental state involving deep feelings of connectedness. Mm-hmm. and or feelings of self-loss. And so mm-hmm. we just we we looked at a few different uh what are called constructs in psychology like um mindfulness for example. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness is defined as having this um this slight self-loss or connectedness aspect and their their scales to measure mindfulness have indicators of this these feelings of connectedness but very subtly right? 
Uh, flow is another one. So when you're mm-hmm. so absorbed in a task that your sense of self sort of fades away and time disappears a little bit, you know, you look up at the clock and hours have passed uh, if you're engaged mm-hmm. in some uh, challenging, interesting task. So going on this kind of spectrum of intensity of these self-transcendent experiences, you, you also have awe, the, the emotion of awe, uh, which involves this perception of uh, vastness, of literal or figurative vastness, like a mind-blowing idea or sweeping mm-hmm. scenery uh, or an amazing performance. Um, so the, in, in states of awe, you can, you know, your whole, your thoughts can stop, your jaw drops, your eyes widen, and yeah. that's kind of a mini self-transcendent experience. And then the, the most intense side of the spectrum are things like peak or mystical type experiences, mm-hmm. which are often defined as, especially mystical type experience, defined as feeling at one with all things. So this complete feeling of unity uh, or complete connectedness. And that can be quite intense and mystical type experience. This, this term comes from William James, the psychologist and philosopher who wrote the varieties of religious experience a century ago. You know, he described these really intense feelings of unity. And so now we use that term, um, to describe feelings of unity. It doesn't refer to supernatural stuff or non-rational stuff, at least in the way that we describe it. Um, but now we use that term in the psychedelic context. Right. And so people who uh, have these deep feelings of connectedness, uh, we use a scale called the mystical experience questionnaire uh, to rate that. So self-transcendent experience is this umbrella term that captures this spectrum of intensity with things like mindfulness, flow, awe, peak, mystical type experiences. Yeah, it's very beautiful. It's beautiful to be, especially in that all state. Like as you were describing it, I was like smiling inside. Um, I think we can be in an all state every day if we want to be, especially when we find awe in the little things in life. Um, that there is a chance, but as you said, it's, it's on this spectrum, right? There's these little things. And then the more, um, I wouldn't, I don't want to say the extreme cases, but I, I guess you understand what my terminology is here. So then, what do you think the role of psychedelics is in facilitating these types of experience? Um, so going back to Professor Griffith's paper, I believe he was also your previous postdoctoral chair. Was he not? Advisor, yeah. 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 Which is really cool. He uh, did a paper in the early two thousands, right. In 2006, if I'm not mistaken on the mystical experiences of having a uh, personal meaning and spiritual significance and then he even did a follow-up on the study 14 months later, where people reported that the psilocybin experience was one of the most profound experiences of their life. So do you think these experiences are a gateway into that other end of the spectrum of the self-transcendence? What do you think the role of psychedelics does here? Yeah, I think psychedelics are pretty much the most reliable way to induce very intense self-transcendent experiences mm-hmm. that we might call mystical type experience. And so in that wonderful 2006 paper, uh, Roland Griffiths and his team showed that psilocybin compared to methylphenidate, which is basically mm-hmm. Ritalin, a quite high dose of Ritalin uh, among people who were more or less drug naive, who hadn't yeah. taken psychedelics before uh, that psilocybin was much more effective at 
at creating a mystical type experience as measured by that mystical experience questionnaire, which is basically very deep feelings of connectedness or unity. Um, so psilocybin was much more effective at inducing that kind of experience than methylphenidate. And psilocybin also had much more positive outcomes than yeah. methylphenidate. So increases to positive mood, attitudes about self and others, altruistic uh, social behavior, um, just overall well-being. And yeah, you're right. Those, those effects appeared to last for over a year, well over a year, uh, as compared to the methylphenidate group. So in both of these conditions in the study, people really felt altered. So yeah. it's not about having an intensely altered state of consciousness per se. Mm. It really matters what, what the character quality of that experience is. And so in the psilocybin experience, people felt more of this, these feelings of connectedness um, and positive emotions like awe, for example. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that appears to be an important part of the process because other than the, the substance, uh, each group received exactly the same preparation and integration sessions and amount mm -hmm. of clinical um, contact, I believe. Uh, yeah. So, so there does seem to be something about psilocybin uh, that that can at least induce these these quite positive outcomes that that seem to persist. Yeah, one of the um, or let's say one of the things that derives from a mystical experience from my understanding is what is called ego dissolution or this loss of a sense of ego and this unity and oneness with the universe. Do you think that people that go through this ego death or, you know, however you want to coin it also, is that a part of the transcendence experience? And then, I mean, also what does it mean to actually experience that? So how, like, how, why is it so important to actually have that, experiences in the first place? Yeah. So again, there's so many labels. And so <laughs> we look at this, the umbrella term, self-transcendent experience and mindfulness flow, awe, mystical experience. I think ego mm -hmm. dissolution, we could put on that continuum as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's basically synonymous with mystical experience. Yeah. It's just that in London, they use the word ego dissolution, whereas at Hopkins, we use the word mystical experience. Oh, really? More. Yeah, more or less. There, I think there. If, if you correlate those scales, like right. if you if you have someone in a psilocybin True. condition take both scales, I think they correlate extremely highly with one another. They're basically measuring the same yeah, yeah, same yeah. thing. I would say. Um, but in terms of yeah, again, this question of mechanism, like why does it work? Why yeah. is it that these kinds of experiences result in more beneficial outcomes? I think we have to say that we don't know exactly. Um, one theory, I think, uh, is that we are social creatures mm -hmm. uh, and it feels quite bad to us to feel isolated or alone. And we can feel isolated or alone even in a crowd, you know, even among loved ones. Uh, yeah. And I think maybe when we have these experiences of deep connectedness, it pierce, pierces through that wall of isolation and we feel connected, uh, which is... Uh, again, something important to us as as such social creatures, but that's just one theory. You know, there there are others as well 
uh, about why these experiences appear to be so beneficial. So more yeah. more research is is needed there. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, on that note, I think you know this study and amongst other so many studies have highlighted highlighted the importance of the psychedelics mystical slash hallucinogenic experiences. And we know that in not even only in the future, but upcoming right now, there's something called psychoplastogens. So basically non-psychedelic psychedelics. And these are something that are being introduced by biotech pharmaceutical companies. Um, I think MindMed is one of them. But anyway, so I guess basically it just mimics the psychedelic and I guess in terms of it in its receptor level. I'm not entirely sure of the mechanisms of it, but basically it is that, you know, it's essentially the drug without the hallucinogenic effect. To me personally, I find it a little problematic because I think the whole point of the psychedelic experience is to have that form of transcendent, um, spiritual, if you want to even call it, um, element to it. But I could be entirely wrong. You know, I'm not, I'm no expert. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on that and what you expect to see uh, in the future for the field? Yeah. So there's a lot of money being poured into developing, yeah. as you say, tripless psychedelics or um, psychedelic-like substances, yeah. uh, but that have no acute subjective effects. And the idea is that they would mimic certain characterized uh, biological processes associated with psychedelics, like, for example, neuroplasticity or neurogenesis uh, and anti-inflammatory properties, but mm. wouldn't create the, the actual psychedelic experience. So I think these efforts are interesting and important clinically and scientifically. Mm-hmm. Clinically, like I said, a lot of people are screened out of from having the psychedelic experience, right. but these people are suffering. And so if these substances are helpful, then those, those people could potentially benefit, um, you know, if, if they're shown to be effective scientifically, I think it's interesting. We can use these substances to help us to understand the mechanisms of why psychedelics appear to be uh, beneficial. So for those reasons, it's great, but I do worry a little bit that, uh, all of these efforts might motivate some people to characterize the acute subjective effects of psychedelics as like an unwanted side effect. Mm. And I don't think that that makes sense and is uh, grounded in, in the actual data, because I think most people find these experiences extremely meaningful uh, and they can yeah. be challenging, like we discussed but yeah. they can also be positive and whether they're challenging or positive, they're often felt to be very meaningful. So I don't, I think I agree with you in the sense that it, it could be problematic to withhold a deeply meaningful experience from someone that we could uh, easily provide. So I've argued that um, normal, you know, subjective psychedelics would, would be kind of like the, the standard Mm-hmm. Uh, and only in special cases would non-subjective psychedelics be administered, assuming, you know, years from now, there are, yeah. these substances are all approved uh, for clinical use, which is a big if, um, but looks somewhat likely at this point. Uh, so I, I just think it's important to stick with the evidence and what the evidence shows is most people benefit from their experiences and find them very meaningful. Uh, and so I think we should 
listen to that and, and take that very seriously. Yeah. So you wrote a paper recently preparing for the bursting of the psychedelic hype bubble, which highlights the hype of the recent psychedelic renaissance. Uh, so the extreme positives and the overly negative extremes as well. Can you talk to us a bit about your concerns here? Yeah. So the background here is that we had decades of extremely negative, basically propaganda against psychedelics. Yeah. Hugely exaggerating uh, their their danger and negative effects. So, you know, if you're if you're like me, in the U.S., we had the Dare program where they said that psychedelics were the worst drug of them all, and that made you go crazy and things like this. So there's just no evidence for that at all, and it was really very very scientifically irresponsible to put out those views. And so the evidence shows that psychedelics are not nearly dangerous in, in those ways, largely non-toxic, largely non-addictive, and seem to have beneficial effects when taken under the right uh, set setting, like we've talked so much about. But over the past few years, we've seen the pendulum swing the other direction, where now we have some people, um, you know, maybe especially in industry, but maybe some researchers, maybe some journalists, um, you know, and 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 people just in general thinking that psychedelics are going to change the world and, and cure mental illness and these really over the top positive assessments. Mm. And I think those are also unanchored from the evidence. Uh, right now we have a few studies showing some potential uh, for benefit uh, in treating disorders like depression and addiction, but these benefits, um, you, you know, appear like they might be real, but, but if they are, uh, it, I think psychedelics would be an evidence-based treatment uh, that could help to address for a period of time uh, these mental illnesses. But I don't yeah. think we're seeing evidence for cure uh, where, where some yeah. people are saying that. So, so my aim is to just get us better aligned with the actual data so that we're not on the one hand, going into fear mongering and alarmism, right. but we're also not on the <laughs> other hand, uh, expecting things from psychedelics that they almost certainly won't be able to deliver on. Uh, you know, I think it's the role of a scientist to often tamp down these extreme statements and try to bring the discussion back to the actual evidence. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very important paper and reminder, especially as you said, at a time where the positive extremes of psychedelics is booming, which of course is, is not a bad thing. But as you said, we have to, you know, be more um, rigored in the data and, and to what's actually out there. Professor Yaden, to wrap up this episode, I would like to speak about your new book, uh, which I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, is a take or an update on William James's, as you mentioned previously, the psychologist on his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, a study in human nature. I think where he explored science, spirituality, and the human search for meaning. Can you walk us through the contents of your book and what you argue or what you put forward based on, uh, I believe, modern science and its development since with the use of like psychometric surveys, neuroimaging, um, and computational models, to name a few. So very excited to hear a little bit more about this. Yeah. So William James, about a century ago, uh, 
wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, where he provided the foundation for studying these intense and meaningful altered states of consciousness that we've been discussing this whole time. And he, he said a few really important things. One is, uh, as scientists, we should take theological and philosophical questions largely off the table. You know, we're never going to know for sure whether these experiences point to some supernatural dimension of reality or not. Mm. And so let's let philosophers and theologians discuss that. And as scientists, let's focus on what we can actually uh, study scientifically, uh, the, what triggers these experiences, what happens in the brain and the body during them, what they feel like, how people describe them and how they impact people's lives. And that we should look and take an evidence-based approach to understanding these experiences. So I think William James provided this fantastic foundation for studying these experiences. And it was uh, eclipsed uh, over the years, like Freud, who thought all these experiences were just mental illness, yeah. or Jung, who thought that these experiences were the key to mental health. So kind of going into those extremes, one super negative, one super positive. And so what we want to do with this book is um, mm -hmm. remind people of William James's approach. You know, he was once the most famous academic in the world, but now he's kind of been lost to history. So we want people to mm -hmm. go back and read the original William James and then also review the past few decades of research in psychology, showing that these experiences are often but not always associated with positive outcomes that for most people, they're actually pretty beneficial. And then a surprising number of people in the population have had these experiences, but they don't talk about them. So there's a taboo. Uh, so we want to go behind the taboo <laughs> um, and to get people uh, or behind the stigma <laughs> uh, to, to really uh, <laughs> you know, get, get people thinking about these experiences, and talking about them openly and studying them more so. And then we end with psychedelics as this new way of studying these kinds of experiences uh, going forward. Uh, so I hope people will pick up the book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience. It's out just as of a couple weeks ago. My gosh, absolutely wonderful. I cannot wait to read this book, which I now have. So I'm so, so excited. Professor Yaden, thank you so, so much for this lovely discussion. It's honestly been such a pleasure learning from you and listening to you. And I wish you all the best with your future work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sierra. It's great to be here. Thank you guys for tuning in and listening. As always, if you like this episode, do support us by either subscribing or leaving a review. To buy Professor Yaden's book, I have linked it to this episode description, along with the link to his profile to read some of his other work. I highly recommend you do so if you're interested in the topic of transcendence and mystical experiences. Thank you guys, and we'll catch you in the next episode.